Reverend Jim Murphy is one of three priests at St. Clair Ecumenical Catholic Church. On today's podcast, he explains what this church is and why he became a part of it after growing up and serving in the Roman Catholic Church for most of his life. Welcome to Faves Forward, a podcast about how faith communities are staying connected during this coronavirus pandemic. I'm Tracy Simmons. Jim Murphy, and I'm a priest of St. Clair Ecumenical Catholic Communion here in Spokane and the Community of the Holy Spirit in Coeur d'Alene. I've been part of the community of uh, St. Clair for maybe six or seven years now. I've been ordained priest for about five years. Prior to that, I um, was a Roman Catholic and uh, I worked at a local hospital as a chaplain for over 25 years. And um, then I went to Coeur d'Alene, worked as a chaplain over there, uh, and just finally retired for good from chaplaincy uh, last uh, November. I'm married, been married for 42 years. I have three grown children uh, and three grandchildren. So... For people who aren't familiar with the ecumenical Catholic community, can you explain what that is? Sure. Ecumenical Catholic Communion was, uh, was really formed in uh, 2003. It's a, it was a group of kind of loosely confederated uh, Eucharistic communities. Most, most of the, the uh, ECC started out as disaffected Roman Catholics. Uh, and as you know, uh, there are many disaffected Roman Catholics. It's estimated there's probably 34 million in, just in the United States alone. And there are a lot of reasons why we become disaffected. For myself, I uh, worked as a chaplain at a local hospital, and for years and years and years, I would hear the stories of of the abuse and just the rejection, the shame that was put on gay men and women. And knowing that uh, this is not a choice that one has, this is something that one embraces and lives because this is how God has made this person. Uh, And the continual condemnation by churches just got to me. That and the fact that women were always second-class citizens, denigrated and pushed to the side. Now, the Roman Catholic Church is a part of this that you know says the priest is uh, when saying mass is an altar Christi, another Christ. <laughs> well, that may be true, but so are these women at two o'clock in the morning when they're nursing uh, sick patients, or the docs that come in uh, at all hours of the day and night. Uh, they're healers, uh, teachers, and it's it, it, the whole thing just didn't make sense to me anymore. And so when I found the ECC, my wife and I had been looking for another church for quite a while. I had been ordained as a deacon in the Roman Catholic Church for many years. And there are lots of good things about the Roman Catholic Church that I liked, especially the education, especially the health care, especially the charities. But the way they treated women and the, and the way they treated gay men and women was just, that was evil, pure and simple. 
and I wouldn't support that anymore. So when I found the ECC, I said, all of a sudden, my goodness gracious, uh, here is a church, a community that is embracing uh, gay men and women, and in particular, women. And so that's one of the distinctives, I suppose, about the, uh, the ecumenical Catholic communion, and it's the one that drew me to it immediately. Other kinds of distinctives about the uh, ecumenical Catholic communion, um, we, uh, our polity, that is our ecclesiology, if you will, is it's synodial, so that we have uh, a house of bishops, a house of pastors, and uh, a house of laity. And it's all of us meeting together in a synod uh, that moves our, our community uh, forward. It does that by uh, dialogue, sometimes argument, sometimes shouting. But this is the way the early church did things, and so uh, this is the way the ecumenical Catholic communion does them also. The fact that the ecumenical Catholic communion uh, is more inclusive than the Roman church means that uh, women are ordained to our priesthood. Uh, women are consecrated as bishops. Gay men and women have no barrier to uh, sacramental sacraments that we offer, uh, which are the traditional seven sacraments, both the Romans and the Orthodox churches. Um, we try to find our uh, heritage, if you will, or our history in uh, our connection with the uh, old Catholics of Utrecht in Holland. Old Catholics are, uh, have a unique history and a unique place in uh, Western Christianity. They, um, they have always been an independent church in the sense that they elected their own bishops. And without getting too far into the weeds, um, they, during the Reformation and the decades that followed, uh, there was some tension between uh, Rome and, and Utrecht about appointing bishops versus electing bishops. And they had been electing their bishop for, well, maybe about seven or 800 years and said, we're not going to change this now. But the real break came uh, after the first Vatican Council. And so this is another distinctive, if you will, of the ECC. Uh, at the First Vatican Council, the uh, Roman Catholic Church declared that the Pope had supreme jurisdictional authority over the whole of all Christendom, really. Uh, and uh, they also, at that time, uh, as you probably know, declared that the Pope was infallible. So the people at Utrecht said, this is just a bridge too far. We're not going there. Uh, this is not part of our tradition. It's not part of what we believe. It certainly is not part of any council that we have ever been part of. So the ecumenical Catholic communion, along with the Church of Utrecht, believes in the first seven councils of the, uh, of the Catholic Church, small c Catholic Church. Uh, where both the uh, East and West were joined together in, uh, in, as one body. You know, another thing I think that, that we're probably more focused on practice rather than belief. And so the idea is, like Jesus said, come and see, come and see. Um, you don't have to believe everything. Uh, walk in the door, experience the community. 
experience Eucharist, experience our sharing. But here's something I have to say too. <laughs> the ECC is not for everybody. All are welcome, but not everybody's going to like it. And that to me is a real key to where we are today. Because I don't believe that the myriad ways that we are Christians all has to be the same. That's part of the richness of who we are and probably comes out of the diverse experiences of, of us in the United States where we have so many ethnic and religious groups. This uniformity, this, this McDonald's uh, concept of everybody's got to be the same uh, no matter where you go in the world. Yes, that has something to say for it. But I think the, the ecumenical Catholic communion is more into enculturation, that is being part of the culture. And also, I have to say that it's very incarnational. That is, we really believe it when we say, you know, the word was made flesh, real flesh. Uh, that's me and that's you. And so I think that that's a really an important part. We're not so much focused on the afterlife as this life. Um, the other important part is that, although this isn't unique to the UCC, but we really do have a focus on creation and our planet, our cosmos. Um, I think that we're firmly uh, grounded in, uh, in the fact of evolution. It's not a belief. It's not a theory. It's, it's really important. It's who we are. We're evolutionary beings. And I say that this is important because to be evolutionary and to be part of evolution calls into question really our whole theological uh, concepts the whole notion of atonement becomes questionable at this point. Tehard de Chardin, the Jesuit priest who was censored by Rome, uh, talked about how original sin, for instance, how does this fit into an evolution? We are the apparently the sixth iteration of creatures on this planet. There were other creatures. They went extinct. Um, we, through no fault of our own, evolved. Garden of Eden and those kinds of things, I think, are good myths, and I mean myths in a capital M in a good way, trying to explain the unexplainable. Uh, but in any case, um, those, I guess, are just off the top of my head, and I should have prepared more. No, you're uh, fine. Uh, but uh, those are kind of what the ECC is about. We are about, you know, I... I I wish I had more stats, but uh, I think we have about about 30 different communities in the in the United States. Mm -hmm. We have three or four in Poland. I don't think we have any in Mexico or Canada. So the Ecumenical Catholic Communion, which is recognized by the National Catholic Council of Churches, is part of uh, a worldwide movement, I guess, of Eucharistic communities. Uh, most of these communities, again, are founded uh, by disaffected Catholics. And, you know, why not become Episcopalian or why not become Lutheran? That's a very good question. And we try to form real ties uh, with the uh, Episcopalians and the, and the Lutherans. There's really not a lot of difference uh, as far as our, our polity and as far as our, our, our liturgies go. They just have slightly different traditions. I know I've been to St. Clair's before. It's been a while, but oh. it, it does kind of have a Catholic feel to it in that you're, you're going to have some of the same 
traditions as if you went to a mass you're going to have the same smells and the same you know that type of of thing Mm -hmm. um but it is much more relaxed i I know when i was there for instance we were all sitting in a circle you know and it was much more uh, intimate yeah but and i know you mentioned um the role of women saint Clair has uh, three priests right including two women that's right. Well, uh, we, we do. Um, uh, Terry McKenzie, uh, uh, Linda Kobe-Smith. And Linda, by the way, had the distinction, I might even say the honor, of being formally excommunicated by the Roman Church. <laughs> when she was ordained, our uh, former pastor, uh, Tom uh, Altpeter, invited the, uh, the press in. So I think there was something in the Inlander. A nice big picture of Linda. And that really ruffled the uh, the cassocks down at the Catholic Ch- Chancery, and so they formally excommunicated her. Wow. I, you know, it's interesting. Um, I don't know why I wasn't formally excommunicated. I kind of feel left out about that. But you know, I was a Roman Catholic all my life, and uh, served as a Roman Catholic chaplain, and was ordained as a Roman Catholic bishop. But I think there's two things: one that I wasn't so public about it, and the other one was that I'm I'm a guy. Mm-hmm. And as you probably know, it's worse worse to endorse women than to be a pedophile in the Catholic Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, and that's just a fact. Because, yeah. and I say that because. Some priests have been have been uh, excommunicated and removed from their role as priest uh, for participating in a woman's uh, priest ordination, whereas the pedophiles well, slap on the wrist and move them around. So I, being a little cynical, but that's just the way it is. And St. Clair's has, t- I think it came to Spokane, I want to say like 2012 or something like that. And, and since then, the ECC has really grown. You mentioned the Coeur d'Alene community. I, I want to say I've heard that there's a community down on the Palouse as well. Can you speak to that a little bit? Let me just say that there, there was a community in the Palouse. We stopped going down. The, the numbers kept uh, dwindling. And so uh, we invited the Palouse to come up to, to Spokane. But I will say about the community of the Holy Spirit in Coeur d'Alene is um, just a remarkable uh, community. Four women, uh, lifelong Roman Catholics, uh, all uh, Benedictine oblates of one monastery or another, had reached a point in their, in their own uh, development and maturation as Catholics and as adults, where they just simply could not tolerate the misogyny and rigidity of the Roman church. And even though they kept supporting it and they found the ECC uh, probably three or four years ago. And they, four of the, four of these women, which by the way, has a very nice, uh, there was a very nice um, article in the fig tree about a, maybe earlier this year, I think uh, about, about these four women. But they uh, got in contact with us, uh, with the ECC, uh, and I happened to be working at uh, Kootenai Health at the time as a chaplain, and, and one of the women was a, or is a physician. And she, uh, we ran into each other in the cafeteria and started talking, and lo and behold, they, that is the four women, decided that they would reach out to others who they knew felt the same way, who wanted a Catholic environment, but could no longer support the Roman Catholic Church. And so these four women gathered about, oh, I'd say another 20 people around them. And we met in a 
one of the women's houses for about a, a year and felt that it was time to be more public, if you will. And so uh, in conjunction with the Lutheran Church of the Master in Coeur d'Alene, we are now nesting uh, in the Lutheran Church of the Master, although since COVID, we haven't been able to meet. Uh, we did meet the first or the last, no, the third Sunday of July this year uh, outside at uh, one of the person's houses. And she had a very large backyard. And so we were all distanced and masked. Uh, that felt really good. But this group in Coeur d'Alene, uh, these, to me, really epitomize what the ECC is about. I happen to be their sacramental minister, but I'm not their pastor. I happen to be a priest, but I'm not the head of the whole thing. These four women, along with others in the community, really take responsibility. So, you know, at any given time, there's there's probably 20 to 25 people that are involved in this. So that's a small group, which is wonderful because part of our uh, Eucharist, part of our, our liturgy is the sharing of the word. And so we uh, always have dialogue masses, dialogue homilies, I should say, where the homilist will set the stage, but the community is invited to, to participate and to offer their own comments and reflections. Being a small group also, we're able to kind of shift things around a lot easier. Uh, and like I say, you know, it's a pretty homogenous group, which, you know, has its pluses and minuses, of course. But right now, these four women uh, hold it together to do all of the um, clerical things that need to be done as far as setting up a community with a state and getting all those kinds of things going. They, I'm very impressed with that. And again, I'm there as a Sacramento minister but not as their pastor, not, not, not as their, quote, leader. I'm a resource for them, uh, and I love doing it for them. One of their members, Therese Fendel, Therese is uh, in preparation now uh, to be ordained uh, as priest. Hopefully, uh, by the end of this year, she's just finishing a master's degree uh, at, uh, at Gonzaga. In fact, you know, because of the ECC and because of her involvement, she's one of the four women, and since she's public, I, I will not hesitate to use her name. But she uh, left. She's a, she was a pathologist uh, uh, for her whole career, but she had felt a strong call to, to priesthood. And so when she became involved with the ECC and investigated what the ECC was about, uh, she she has closed her practice. She uh, went to get some theological training. I think she'll finish her master's degree this, this uh, August. And... Um, hopefully will be ordained before the end of the year wow. so that the community of uh, the Holy Spirit in, in Coeur d'Alene will have its, uh, its own priest that comes out of the community rather than having it imposed upon them. That's pretty impressive. Wow. Yeah, it really is. I, it, it quite, quite a development uh, evolution, if you will over the course of a few years. And the people who are part of uh, the community of the Holy Spirit are just really remarkable people, wonderful people. Yeah. Again, you know, I have to say this too, because this is what I believe. I, I, in a sense, am sad that we have to have an ecumenical Catholic communion in the sense of 
the restrictiveness and and just the the evil of uh, of discrimination against women and gays. I wish that we didn't have to do this, but we do have to do it, and we will do it, and we'll continue to do it. I look on upon us as an experiment, a community of the Holy Spirit in Coeur d'Alene as an experiment in such. We have a responsibility, but we also have the freedom to try different things, to, to try to, to figure out how to, to worship as a community, how to pray as a community, how to have a community that is transformative. How can we put on the mind of Christ? This is what we're all about. That's why we focus more on practice than belief. I've always said, you know, don't look at my mouth, look at my hands, look at my feet, <laughs> look what I'm doing. This is, uh, you can talk a big, great talk, but you can't give what you don't have. And if you don't have the mind of Christ, then you can't give it. Mm-hmm. And so what, what practices do you, do you use? Um, how do you practice every day to try to uh, foster and to be transformed, to, to put on the mind of Christ. That's a really important piece. Yeah. Anyway. So how are these two communities practicing? And, and right now during COVID, are, are you doing Zoom worship or are you uh, <clears throat> kind of putting everything on pause right now? I know you said you had the one gathering in July. We had the one gathering in Coeur d'Alene. Mm-hmm. St. Clair isn't there yet. Part of uh, who we are, uh, <laughs> a lot of white hair and gray hair in our community. We are an older group, and so obviously we're more at risk. And so the St. Clair community, which was meeting at the SNAP headquarters here in uh, Spokane, which is the old Dominican sisters' mother house or convent, uh, we were meeting there in their beautiful chapel, but we haven't been able to get back into that. And so we've been meeting via Zoom. And this, again, is an important piece. And, and there are Zoom liturgy. This is a really an interesting topic and an interesting phenomenon with churches that confect Eucharist uh, and that share Eucharist. And so there is a real debate about whether whether you can confect Eucharist online or not, which I find almost scholastic in its approach of how many angels on the head of a pin. But uh, I I guess it's a question worth exploring. And uh, for us uh, at St. Clair, ECC, and and the uh, community of the Holy Spirit, uh, we don't have any problem with that because uh, it is our belief uh, with full active participation of, of our community, that it is not just me as a priest that's, that's uh, with magic fingers bringing down the Holy Spirit. It's all of us together as a community praying that makes the body and blood of Christ real in our midst. And so to me, uh, having this time of Zoom only reinforces that because each family, each screen, if you will, does confect their own Eucharist in their own home. I kind of liken it to uh, almost uh, the Jewish practice of Shabbat, where where the family uh, gathers and uh, shares bread and wine uh, on a Friday night, who lights the candles, um, says their prayers. Uh, that doesn't seem to have hurt the, um, the Jewish community. In fact, it probably makes them stronger. <laughs> I've heard that that some rabbis would say that 
if if nobody came to Friday night service, uh, but everybody was home uh, with their home Shabbat, uh, that they would uh, that he would be fine with that. Anyway, the point is is that a Zoom liturgy has uh, really expanded our our notion of uh, of Eucharist. It certainly isn't the same. I, as a presider, and I'm, you know, one small little screen over here, and we probably have 35 screens, so I'm not, I'm not sure how many people that would be, probably in the 50s somewhere. Again, we're a small community, but it works for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we send out each week, we send out the prayers that were going to be shared the readings that are that are going to be shared, the homilist uh, presents the homily. We do have a dialogue afterwards. Uh, we have community prayer where we uh, where we uh, offer our own prayers, and and each person uh, is in charge of their own mic. Uh, we again sh- have learned how to share the Eucharistic prayer because we are concelebrating. And uh, I think that after these months, we're beginning to get a feel for it and here's one measure of this when we first started doing this we would meet weekly for about an hour and a half and now we can probably do this in probably 20 20 minutes 25 minutes critiquing and and getting ready to go on to the next to, to the next week so i think we're getting the technique the technicals down and probably I, I think it will change our understanding of liturgy as we go forward. I'm not sure how it will do that, but I think that it will. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're seeing uh, definitely a shift in how we do church. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, and our understanding. You know, it's curious, uh, and this is a digression, but I think it's an important one. Somehow people denigrate what we're doing right now because it's not, quote, face-to-face. I'll give me an example. Next door to us is a physician, and... She does a lot of telemedicine now, of course, but she's only reimbursed at 25 percent of what a what an inpatient, what a what a live visit would be, or a live consult would be. And it's unfortunate because she's giving the same expertise, she's she's taking the same amount of time, but somehow it's not quite as as good or real. And again, I think that that we're going to have to rethink this. We're in the same quandary with teaching, not having inpatient or in-house, uh, in-classroom kinds of things. So we are going to have to rethink it. And I think that we're going to find out that that Zoom, and I'll just use that as a generic, is, uh, is really uh, quite legitimate. It's not, yes, it's not as good as uh, being in person. There's no question about that. But it's also better than nothing. So... The COVID kind of came along at a at a, an interesting time that we have this capability. Right, a hundred years ago, how did they? Right, there's no opportunity to gather no. like this. Right, no, there wasn't. Uh-uh. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was pretty it could be pretty grim, and I suppose that's that's one of the things um, that that is you know somewhat worrisome. Um, uh, even though we would only see each other once a week. For Eucharist, seeing each other on a screen, I, I myself have more of a feel of disconnect, and it's, it's somewhat, bo- it was not somewhat. It does bother me that I feel that way, but I'm not sure. Well, yeah, it's just COVID, <laughs> different thinking. Right. Yeah. Now, now you, you said you retired from the chaplaincy just about a year ago, so that's right before 
uh, COVID. Yes. Is, is there a part of you that's, you know, I've talked to people who used to be nurses or whatever, who are kind of feeling this desire to this angst a little bit to get back in there and, and help. Are you feeling a little bit of that? No, I'm not. Uh, I've been doing this since 1981 and I've seen a lot and heard a lot and done a lot, uh, but I don't feel that. I think that if, if I could go back, uh, which I'm 76, so I'm not about to do that, but I would want to be doing nursing rather than uh, chaplaincy right now. What little I know about chaplaincy during COVID, uh, you can't go into rooms. You can't, you know, you're, you're so limited in, in how you can interact with people. And that's, of course, the whole point. Uh, certainly, you can give your attention to the staff, uh, which, which is important. But standing at a doorway uh, and praying, you know, with somebody who's 20 feet away from me, I just, no, I'm glad that I'm not exposed to that, frankly. Yeah. So you were a second career pastor. Is that a second <laughs> career pastor? What do you mean? Um, you said you were ordained about five years ago? Ordained as an ECC priest five years ago, yeah. Uh-huh. I started as a chaplain uh, in 1981, and I, that was a full-time career for me. That's what I did. In fact, you know, I have to say this. I, uh, you know, I grew up, I grew up as a Roman Catholic and an Irish Catholic family. I went to Catholic schools. Uh, I spent five years in a Trappist community in, in, uh, in Oregon, where the emphasis was being a monk, uh, not a pastor. Uh, I've been a chaplain for, since 1981, so that's a long time. And uh, I've never had this pastor mentality. I've always been a sacramental minister, if you will. And so I don't have that that kind of thing where I have to be the center of attention and and I have to be the the one that has the last say. It just that's just not who I am. So when I left um, first hospital here in Spokane, and uh, I, I went back to school. I was what sixty three years old, I think, and I went back to Spokane Community College and studied uh, surgical technology for two years with the idea that I could use this as in the missions. Um, and so I went to Guatemala, and and that was really very instructive. I really liked that. I had no intention of becoming a priest. <laughs> I was I was I was an old guy, and and I had done my piece, said what I was going to say. And when I found the ACC, I told Tom, uh, who was a pastor at that time, that I just was looking for, Jeanette and I, my wife, were looking for a community where we could, where we could just come and pray. Do you know, it's, it's a funny thing. When a community asks you to do something uh, because they see in you uh, uh, certain qualities uh, that uh, can be of service to them, really have to respond to that, pray about that and respond to that. And so when I was invited to be, uh, to be one of their priests, I said yes to that. And since I wasn't looking for it, aiming for it, uh, uh, lobbying for it, uh, I thought, okay, this is something that's being offered to me. 
<laughs> I think my wife would like it if I wasn't so focused. It's almost like a part-time job, really. Because being a priest, you know, you have an obligation. Even though you're not, quote, a, the leader of the community, I still have an obligation to stay current with theology, to continue to uh, have a prayer life. Not that uh, other people don't. But probably the more the focus on theology and, and scripture and those kinds of things uh, as being part of my daily uh, regimen. I, <laughs> I like to say that, that, especially during COVID, I feel like I'm back uh, being a monk, getting up, spending most of my mornings uh, in study and then working around the house and cooking and um, planning meals and, and that sort of thing the rest of the day. Yeah, I. This was a second. It's not a second career, but it's uh, something that I hadn't planned on. Uh, I had had an, you know, being a chaplain is a very difficult job because you are the emotional uh, bearer, the bearer of of emotions, and those emotions typically are fear, anxiety, dread, uh, sadness, loss. And it's, and it's not that, the, that the, the physicians or the nurses or the other staff can't do that, but, but this is what a chaplain does because you can't be titrating IVs, uh, you can't be performing procedures, uh, and at the same time being emotionally connected with that patient. Uh, you have to pay attention to what you're doing on other realms of your consciousness. And so a chaplain goes in and is with that person on that deep emotional level. And uh, and that takes a toll. And after almost 40 years, uh, I'm just glad to put it down. I'm uh, sure. I'm sure. But I bet there's a lot of using those skills right now during COVID with the people in your community who are maybe maybe not on their deathbed, but are feeling some of those emotions, that fear, that anxiety. Right. Um, uh, but as a matter of fact, we have had one, uh, one of our members die and another one Several more are closer to uh, their passage than others, and so that's that is the reality of our community. I uh, certainly uh, offer what I can, but part of this also is that this is a community, and we're adults, and we have these relationships with one another, and and I don't feel like I have to be the guy always coming in. I don't think Linda feels this way either. We all have our relationships and support. And if we don't, we make sure that somebody is connected. Uh, so we do use our skills that way. But because we're a, a, a mature community, uh, let alone an older community, I, I think that there is a different sense about being connected. None of us are spring chickens, so to speak. And, it, it, you know, we mentioned the kind of the shift in worship. Uh, I've noticed a lot of people are doing uh, digital church shopping <laughs> right now. Oh, uh, if people want to get involved or kind of check you guys out, how do they go about doing that? Uh, they can go to our website, and on the website is the Zoom connection that they can click on uh, every Sunday morning at uh, 10 a.m. Okay. Um, they don't have to uh, pop up on a screen if they don't want to. As you know, with Zoom, you can just uh, join uh, with uh, audio. Um, they don't have to say anything. They can be quite anonymous. Uh, no one's going to call on them or anything. They're perfectly free to do that. But to go to the website. I will be sure to put a link in the description for people. 
Anything you want to add before we uh, we sign off? Just uh, thank you very much for taking an interest, uh, for inviting uh, for me, and for wanting to learn a little bit more about the Ecumenical Catholic Communion. Uh, I do thank you for that, and I thank you for the work that you're doing. I think that that the kind of uh, program, um, the emails that I get, the uh, the occasional. Uh, uh, article that appears uh, in the spokesman, uh, the uh, uh, community worship building, I guess we could call it. Uh, all these are great additions to Spokane, and I really do thank you for that. Uh, oh, thank, thank you for taking the time for this, too. I wish you all the best, truly. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You as well. That was Jim Murphy talking about his experience working as a chaplain and how it's informing his ministry today. Thanks for listening to Faves Forward, which you can find on our website, spokanefaves.com or on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.